PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. They're basically stuck in step-to-step gait initiation, which is not a spinal-level function. It's a supraspinal function. It's interesting that we use that word task-specific training across all of these to say locomotor training is task-specific training. It may be that the device is introducing some of those deficits. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Locomotor Training in People with Chronic Spinal Cord Injury. Dr. Andrea Behrman moderates this discussion about a randomized controlled trial published in PTJ, which examined four locomotor training interventions in adults with chronic spinal cord injury. Dr. Behrman is joined by lead author Dr. Adele field along with Dr. Michelle Basso. And now, Andrea Behrman. Welcome to today's discussion. I'm Andrea Behrman. I'm an associate professor at the University of Florida's Physical Therapy Program. And we're going to be discussing an article by Field Fauté and Roach. It's titled, Influence of a Locomotor Training Approach on Walking Speed and Distance in People with Chronic Spinal Cord Injury, a randomized clinical trial, and it was published in January 2000. 11 in the Physical Therapy Journal. So I have the distinct pleasure of working today with two colleagues and friends, Dr. Adele field Fote and Dr. Michelle Basso, and I'm just going to ask them to introduce themselves. Dr. field Fote was the primary author of this paper, and Dr. Basso wrote an invited commentary on the article also in PTJ. So, Eddie. Yes, Dr. Adele field Fote, Eddie to most who know me. I'm a professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and I direct the Neuromotor Rehabilitation Research Laboratory at the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. So most of my work has to do with research related to movement and motor function in individuals with spinal cord injury, and we focus on clinical trials. Thank you. Michelle? Hi, I'm Michelle Basso. I am a professor at The Ohio State University. I am the director of research for the School of Allied Medical Professions here, and I have two primary research interests. One is using animal models to look at mechanisms of recovery after spinal cord injury, and then the other is to do translational work to address some of the limitations in locomotor recovery for people with incomplete spinal cord injury. All right, excellent. So, Eddie, I believe this is likely the largest study of persons with chronic spinal cord injury that's been published to date, so we're excited to see it, and congratulations on completing this study. I'm wondering if you can share with us just a little bit about the study, briefly, its purpose, population, and the interventions. So, this was a study on individuals who were all motor incomplete spinal cord injury, and they were injuries of various severities. And we tried to make sure that the four different training groups, which I'll explain in a moment, were equally represented in terms of the range of severity of injury. And so 
we stratified the assignment to group. It was a randomized stratification where the stratification was done on the basis of their lower extremity motor scores with the goal of trying to have equal representation across the groups. So one of the major premises for the development of the different training groups was that we really wanted to emphasize different components of the neural circuitry that we think are important for walking. So the treadmill-based training with the manual assist was really meant to help elicit the afferent input that would promote stepping. So bringing the leg back into full extension and the rhythmic movement of the limbs that we see in the animal literature seems to contribute to spinal-generated walking. But also that treadmill group with the manual assist would allow the person to contribute the portion that they were able to contribute and have assistance for the parts that they couldn't. Then the treadmill with stem group which we had thought would be the most optimal training approach, uses the treadmill input to kind of activate those pattern-generating circuits, but also was meant to improve the efficacy of those flexor withdrawal reflex circuits. The literature suggests that those flexor reflex circuits are either part of the pattern-generating circuitry or communicate very strongly with the pattern-generating circuitry. So our thought was that if we can improve the efficacy of those circuits during training and make the maximum use of the pattern generating circuitry, that, that would be the optimal way to train somebody to walk. The overground group was almost a control group because it pretty much most closely represents what someone might do typically in the clinical setting. So there are body weight support devices that you can use overground. There are commercially available dorsiflex assist devices that can be worn on the shank to assist with dorsiflexion. And so that was a group that we thought would tell us about the importance of, and to whatever extent there is this supraspinal drive to those spinal circuits because they had to take a step voluntarily, step by step. They didn't have any assistance other than just for dorsiflexion. And then the fourth group was the group that received treadmill training in the locomat. And we were very interested in the contribution of the appropriate proprioceptive input that is associated with walking and how that contributes to the improvement of walking function with a relatively long period of training. All of the groups received body weight support from unloading to the limbs. We tried to be careful that they had similar amounts of unloading across the groups. And I do want to make the point that the way we used the Locomat robot was very much as a passive mechanical guidance device. We didn't use the feedback software that's currently available because when we ordered the device, that software was not available. This was a third device delivered to the United States. It has a serial number of eight. <laughs> so it was one of the very early devices. And because we were using it as part of a randomized trial, we couldn't upgrade the software as the software improved. So I think that's a very important point to make because what we have found may not generalize to what is possible with the new software. So all groups received three months of training. That was the goal, to have five days a week training for 12 weeks and with a week on either end for the testing. Can I ask a question real quick? For the Locomat group, Eddie, did you give them any verbal cues to contribute as much as they could or give them any instruction? So their instruction was to walk, to walk with the device. 
and the person who was with them would encourage them periodically during the walking to walk with the device. Kind of an interesting side note to that, we were doing a study one day where we were monitoring the EMG as the person walked, which we didn't do routinely, but I was chatting with the person as they were walking in the locomat, and I noticed that the EMG was very small, and this was a person who had reasonable walking function over ground. She was at the higher end of the functioning, and I asked her if she was paying attention to the fact that she was walking, and she said, no, oh, no, and she turned her attention to the fact that she was walking, and immediately her EMG bumped up to a larger amplitude. And so that's a good question, Michelle, and a really important point. But just that phenomenon that you're saying right there, the idea that her EMG was regulated by conscious attention. Yeah. What do you think that says about rehabilitation for people with spinal cord injury? Because, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, one of the things I tried to write about in the article, but it's difficult to put it in the words that you can back up what's in the literature. So my sense after doing the study, and both of you know me well, I came from a complete spinal cord model of animal transection. So I'm very much a proponent of the idea that there are spinal circuits that can assist with walking. The major thing that I learned, I think, from the outcome of this study was how important that spinal drive to those locomotor circuits are. So the EMG is similar to what one would see in someone with a complete injury or what we see in the literature related to spinal cats with somewhat low amplitude unless you do something else to it. And that something else in the animal models is squeezing the tail or pinching the perianal area in the complete animals. And that is meant to increase the excitability of those pattern generating circuits. In this particular case, I think that attending to the walking had that same effect. So it increased the drive to those spinal circuits. So quickly go over those results so we put that in context maybe. So the main finding of the study was that in terms of walking speed, there were no significant between group differences, but the effect size for the overground trained group was larger than the other groups. In terms of walking distance, which is the two-minute walk test distance, the overground group was significantly better than each of the other groups. And why do you think that happened? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I think that in hindsight, that when one looks at the motor learning literature and what's important to actually make a change in a behavior, that it's very important to practice a task the way the task will ultimately be performed. And I think that perhaps highlights the differences between walking on a treadmill and walking over ground. I mean, if you look at the literature related to treadmill walking and you see what it says about things like ground reaction forces and kinetics and kinematics, it doesn't appear that they are very different. But you and I know that when you walk on a treadmill or run on a treadmill, it doesn't feel the same as walking over ground or running over ground. And so something about it is different. Maybe the nervous system picks up on that and responds better when the environment most closely mimics what the individual needs to do over ground. And Michelle made a really important point about, you know, part of the problem here is that we are training the overground group in the way all the groups will be tested. So they have, if you will, an unfair advantage. So task-specific training... I mean, everybody would say, or I'm not sure everybody, but most people would say 
they were all task specific. Right, and because they're all locomotion. They're yeah. all walking related. But it's interesting that we use that word task specific training across all of these to say locomotor training is task specific training. So can That's I jump in? I'd like to add a couple of things from your own work, Eddie. The paper that you published before the randomized clinical trial, the paper in the Journal of Neuroengineering and Rehabilitation in 2009, one of the most important things I found in that paper was actually the work that you did in the non-disabled people. And I think it fits in really nicely here to think about task-specific training because in this paper... Eddie took people that were not disabled and had them walk on a walker, and she had them match the walking speeds that patients typically use. And what was really interesting is that they had significant alterations in their gait patterns. They lost symmetry in their stepping, and it looks like at least one of the impediments was the walker itself. Is that not yeah. right? Yeah, they had to, you're right, they so, had to modify the way they walked to accommodate the presence of the walker. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. And so I think that that's really an interesting thing to think about, both in terms of specificity of training and transfer of training. Maybe from being on the treadmill where you have body weight support or even in an overground situation where you have body weight support and then you go to overground and you're witnessing a lot of deficits, it may be that the device is introducing some of those deficits. As a clinician, I'm not sure we think about that. No, you're right. I mean, I certainly haven't given that aspect of it much thought. What I've thought more about is the idea of what is the person learning to do to move themselves when they're walking over ground versus what are they learning to do to move themselves when they're walking on a treadmill. It may be that the treadmill is better at getting them to the intrinsic frequency of the pattern generator that's necessary for walking that we know from other published studies. And they can't get there when they're walking over ground. And so rather than being able to draw on those spinal pattern generating circuits, they're basically stuck in step-to-step gait initiation, which is not a spinal level function. It's a supraspinal function. And so that may be one of the keys, in my mind, to the difference between the motor learning that occurs on a treadmill and the motor learning that occurs over ground, at least at these very slow walking speeds. So let me ask you this. Do you think you can walk fast enough with a walker to ever tap into the spinal circuits for stepping? Well, all of our subjects use rolling walkers. So with a rolling walker, yes, I think you could. And in the children, if it's a backwards rolling walker, I think the step two walker, no. The rolling walker, more likely. But I think one of the key things that's so different and in between the overground and how we traditionally use a walker is that we're traditionally weight-bearing on our arms and our trunk is flexed and we're not upright. And so what happens, I think, when I look at the differences among these, is that's one of the key differences that someone can learn in the body weight support treadmill environment. Now, you can cue them to get upright over ground, and you can facilitate that. But in over ground, Eddie, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of supraspinal descending 
input, lift it up, put it down. I got to lift it up, stop, put it down. And we may not, we're, they're learning. They're getting better at that task, but I'm not sure they're getting better at the actual neural control of walking like they were prior to their injury. Well, I think that there's an important point and distinction to make here because I keep having this image in my head of overground training with these people. And the thing that I keep forgetting about is that these people had an overhead body weight support harness and system and you could be upright and you had the choice of any kind of assistive device you could use. I mean, they wouldn't have to have a walker because you have the overhead system. The use of body weight support in the overground environment has a lot of interesting potential. But I don't understand why we would marry that with an assistive device, especially the walker, which is going to slow them down and encourage alternate postures. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea for the next trial is how much difference does the assistive device make if you can train them overground using, for example, the forearm crutches where they can get that reciprocal activity in the upper and lower extremity and still have balance. That might be the best way to go. The difficulty with this population in terms of using the forearm crutches as opposed to the walker is that they really require something like a walker for the balance. The forearm crutches didn't supply sufficient balance for them. And if you were to assist them with the balance by providing additional body weight support, then you would have to unweight them so much that they wouldn't be able to generate sufficient ground reaction forces to move themselves forward over ground. So that's the difficulty of finding the balance between how much of balance support the assisted device can provide versus how much can be provided by the body weight support system. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that brings up a really important distinction between the groups that you had, Eddie, and that has to do with the amount of adaptation that was allowed. You know, with any kind of learning, there has to be trial and error. And Reggie Edgerton just had a really elegant study in animals showing the value of robotic training in animals, but they let there be errors in the movement. And the animals had better locomotor recovery if they were allowed to have some errors than if they were meant to move in the kinematically appropriate way. And the other thing we know from Edgerton's work and others is that if you provide a stimulus, the nervous system becomes dependent on that stimulus and never learns to work independently of it. So in the tail crimping example that we talked about earlier, and in those animals, they couldn't step if there was no afferent input from the tail or the perianal stimulation. So there's an inherent difference between your groups in the amount of adaptation, I think, because overground allowed a lot of adaptation. There was a lot of trial and error from step to step, and maybe not so much in the dorsiflexors because that was driven by the stim device, but on the treadmill with the stim, I just wonder if you're eliciting the flexor withdrawal reflex on every step, did the nervous system become dependent on that efferent input? There wasn't any modulation of that reflex, right? It was yeah. um, No, there wasn't. And we are still analyzing the reflex data. But to the same extent that the nervous system becomes dependent on that type of stimulation for stepping, one might argue that the treadmill does a similar thing, that the afferent 
input that arises from the fact that one is using the treadmill may be a source of something that the individual might become dependent upon that they're not going to be able to use in the overground condition. But I want to go back to your point about variability because I think that's also a critical point. There was a very nice case series in physical therapy in 2009 by Musselman and her colleagues, and they compared in a case series individuals who were trained to walk on a treadmill versus individuals who were trained to walk overground in the real world without body weight support. And they termed this skilled walking training. And in that training, the individuals were required to go up and down stairs. They were required to go over curbs, around obstacles. And their data suggests that that might be a better way to train than to train on the treadmill. And that group got a lot of variability in their walking training, in that skilled walking. And I've read that study and appreciate the direction they took for the kind of advanced type skills and very community-based type activities. But I think we have the opportunity to retrain the nervous system to be at a higher level of function and then reintroduce many of these higher level skills. We can do some of those on the treadmill, stepping over obstacles and things, but you have to get to overground in the community. I think you can then transfer that ability and have the capacity to deal at a higher level with obstacles and such with better balance, better posture control than if you just went forward. Now, maybe I should do a study on that. But I think (laughs) that's a slightly different approach. And again, it's task-specific training with the device, with the walker in the community versus can we retrain the neuromuscular system itself to better be able to deal with the world and then get it out there in the world. Yeah. Hey, you guys, I think we're going to run out of time here shortly. So is that all right if I shift gears? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Since both of you have experience working in basic science labs as well as human research labs, I'm wondering if there's anything from this study that we should be taking back to the basic science lab. Michelle, you mentioned variability from Reggie Edgerton. I'm just wondering if there's anything else like that that would benefit us as we try and go forward Well, I'm writing a grant right now that is specifically focused on task-specific training in animals where we're specifically trying to see if we can improve toe clearance, so dorsiflexion, and trunk stability because those are the two things that we see in the clinic, in the human patients, and Eddie, you'll probably agree with this as well, that seem to have persistent deficits. And what's really surprising to us is that our animal models, whether they be rat or mouse, also show those same sort of persistent deficits in toe clearance and trunk stability. So we're specifically trying to pick tasks that are clinically relevant, that we could really walk across the street and try it in our patients if they work in the animals. I I think that that toe clearance issue is a major problem, and I'm pleased to hear that someone who works with animals is focusing on that. We are doing some studies here where we're looking at using things like operant conditioning and reflex modulation to see if we can either improve the ability to dorsiflex or use that reciprocal inhibitory circuit to allow dorsiflexion to occur more naturally. But we haven't been able yet to get to the point we've been able to integrate it into the walking piece. But I think that's critically important. And the fact that you're looking at it during walking, I think, is very nice. All right. Excellent. So 
a last take-home message, Eddie, for the clinicians? Mm-hmm. So I think for me, the hopeful thing about the study was that it seems like as long as you work on improving walking function with something that is task appropriate, that the individuals improve their walking speed and improve their distance as well. And it seems like the more the individual is able to participate and contribute to the effort of walking, the more they make improvement in speed and distance. And it doesn't seem that it's necessary to have very expensive equipment to be able to make an improvement in walking speed and distance, even in someone who has a chronic chronic foot injury. Michelle, anything to add? Yeah, so I think that this study, in addition to the case studies that have come before it and the acute clinical trial and body weight support treadmill training, I think what it adds here is more evidence that we need to be aggressive in how we treat our patients and that recovery is activity dependent. I think from this study, we know that it has to be very task specific. The way we structure the task is going to be crucial. And for the clinicians, I would challenge you to think about when to add the assistive devices because we may be encouraging more compensation in the early parts of recovery than we really intend or want. Thank you, Michelle. Well Thank you, Eddie. It's been delightful. Thank you, guys. Discussing this today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825.